Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. Welcome back to CamFest 2021. This is uh, our part two to our ricochet coverage. We are speaking with one of the stars of the documentary, Mr. Matt Gonzalez, the man, the myth, the legend. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you all. Yeah, you know, we, we just had uh, your director, uh, Chihiro Wimbush, on, um, and he gave us some great background on the documentary. But um, can you start off by telling us what your role was in the film and, and what it was like for you to relive this case again? Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of the attorneys that represented uh, 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 Garcia Zarate. Um, and it was an interesting experience because, you know, as you probably are aware, once you have a camera following you, you do get to a place where you're just not conscious of, of it anymore. And so when I watch the film, I'm just, I really see that these private moments are being captured in part because of this this conceit that happens where you just like forget that somebody's in the room with a camera um it's fun to watch <laughs> and reliving the case again um you know in particularly for us as san franciscans seeing jeff adachi on the screen again mm -hmm. you know in his element was was really powerful and and emotional well, he, you know, he's such an important figure in San Francisco, certainly of the last couple of decades. And, um, you know, I used to see him every day and we'd kick around cases and it was always a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I wish there were footage of the times that I was in the room giving him ideas about his cases, you know, so. <laughs> we believe you. Relationship, yeah. In the story of Ricochet, you know, there's the the other layer of the political side of this case that wasn't political. Uh, it was made political by um, the guy who used to be our president. And I want to know if you can kind of talk more about that layer of the story, because, I mean, maybe not as a lot of our listeners know, but as Ange and I know, you have a lengthy history in politics too. So it felt like you knew how to play the game. So if you can talk more about that. Well, you know, I don't, I think, it, I think the case <clears throat> is a important and significant case, but had Donald Trump not been talking about it, I think it would have had kind of regional importance. And I think it probably would have kind of, been followed in kind of a long weekend cycle, maybe for maybe for seven or ten days. Uh, it would not have uh, dominated, you know, national media the way it did. Um, when we were getting ready to try the case, we were very conscious of the presidential election, and we wanted to not try the case uh, and give uh, Donald Trump even more to speak about. And so we actually postponed the trial till after the election, expecting Hillary Clinton would be president. Uh, little did we know Trump would be president and it would only actually amplify 
the media coverage. Uh, had I been a lawyer that wanted to be famous, we would have tried it during the presidential contest. <laughs> uh, so it was just very ironic. Um, for your older listeners, they might remember the case of uh, Willie Horton, which was uh, a case that came up when Michael Dukakis was running for president. He had been governor at the time that he granted a furlough to Willie Horton, who then went out and committed other crimes, I believe a rape and possibly uh, other types of assaults. And although that wasn't a pending criminal case that would be tried to a jury, it's the only other case I know that it that has uh, kind of played such a dominant role during a presidential contest. And so I, don't, I just don't think we were ready for that. Um, I have been involved in politics. Uh, you know, I was on the board of supervisors you know, got elected about 20 years ago and served one term. And back then, San Francisco was actually a lot more conservative, right? We've had 20 years of a much older generation, for the most part, um, kind of not being here anymore. And so the voters are actually more progressive now. And, and back then, I often had to defend ideas that are just so easy to win people over on now. I mean, everybody's in agreement about the creation of a minimum wage or paying workers more, or whether it be universal health care coverage, um, and discussions of creating things like a municipal bank, or, mm -hmm. you know, just, just some really basic stuff, if you just think about it, were met with a lot of hostility back then. And so I learned how to defend these ideas to very conservative and moderate voters. And um, in a way, I think that helped in this trial because there was a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, kind of media certainty about things that they were just factually wrong about. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely watching this and knowing your history in, in San Francisco politics, it, it definitely wasn't lost on me. The, the irony of your case being exploited and used for political gain while you were yourself uh, in your short term in, in office, definitely not one to, to give in to the system and, and to push back against the very thing that was exploiting your case in the film. So um, I, I, I would like to, it's funny, you mentioned becoming supervisor. I was definitely one of your constituents in D5 at the time. And um, I'm curious to know what, part of being a trial lawyer kind of prepared you for becoming a supervisor and, and helped in that way? And, and what parts of being a supervisor really just you were not prepared for? Well, I'll answer the second question first. I really wasn't prepared for being a supervisor at all. I had run for district attorney in 1999 against Terrence Hallinan, who was considered the most progressive district attorney in the United States at the time. And I actually ran to his left and argued for the ending of the three strike law, decriminalizing mm. marijuana, um, you know, ending the death penalty, things like that. And uh, the following year, I was encouraged to run for supervisor in the new district drawn races or, or uh, districts. And so I ran a campaign. Uh, I joined the Green Party during that contest and um, was elected supervisor having raised and spent the least amount of money of any of the, of the winners, it suddenly occurred to me, I had never been to a meeting of the board of supervisors. <laughs> I'd never even watched one. And so I wasn't very prepared to be honest. 
Um, later, of course, I ran for vice president with Ralph Nader uh, in California. We were on the ballot with the, the Socialist Party, the uh, Peace and Freedom Party. And so I've been out there doing a lot of lefty progressive advocacy for a long time. What I find uh, heartening is that, you know, the left of the Democratic Party is now adopting many of those views. You see that with, uh, you know, the Democratic Socialists and what have you. And so I'm optimistic for the future. But back then it was a very different, it was a very different enterprise and, and much more challenging. To talk about your political career and think about where we are now in America and in, in national politics and also just local politics. Are you surprised at how divided we've become in the last, what, 10, 10 years, it feels like? Um, was the insurrection a surprise to you? Can you talk more about just where you sit in, in politics and, and what you see? Well, I, you know, I just got back from visiting family in South Texas. And um, although it's a, it's a majority Mexican, Mexican-American uh, area, there are a lot of Trump supporters down there. There are a lot of Republicans. And I've always just been perplexed by the ability of the, the, uh, the Republicans to, to basically join two forces that have nothing in common with, with one another. One is the corporate right, and mm. the other is the Christian right. And if you think about it, the, the Christians should be supporting efforts to create health care for everyone, to do the things to take care of people. I mean, they, they, those are fundamental values of the, of the folks that identify as Christian. The, the hangup for them is abortion. And because of that hangup, the corporate uh, 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 entities know these candidates that, that, that uh, serve the, the corporatists know that they can give up this kind of social issue on abortion and always get the right. And the right excuses everything else because they bought into that thing. And really these two things, I mean, we have to find a way to break those apart because I, I think, I think uh, our values, you know, kind of the fundamental social socialist values of trying to create a wider safety net, the same way that we have clean drinking water, or streets that you can drive down to get somewhere that you know are safe and available to everybody without paying a toll, uh, that that should apply to healthcare and that should apply uh, to, the, to the things that, that will improve our lives. And I think the, the Christians should be with us on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's such an important point. I mean, we both have family members and, and people that we know that are that are right on, along that line. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's infuriating. Um, and, you know, as for you, as somebody that reads and researches, uh, you know, does the general public just infuriate you on a regular basis? <laughs> like it does well, us? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't understand how <clears throat> people have excused the kind of I didn't even know how to say it, except kind of the ugly and gross aspects of Trump or Ted Cruz and people like mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and that's that's frankly being charitable to them. They're hypocrites. They're fundamentally, um, you know, unsavory when you start looking at the things Trump has mm-hmm. been accused of and said out of his own mouth and the way that he has attacked people for their, whether it be their disabilities or their whatever, whatever you want to do. I mean, it's just odd to me that college educated people 
uh, would still vote for him and excuse that. And, you know, I do have a lot of respect for the Republicans out there that have said, you know, we'd rather a Democrat win that we have respect for than, than, than these folks who, you know, hold political office. But I don't, I don't have any uh, greater um, uh, perch than, than you do in terms of, you know, how I, I look at this. Uh, I think the media uh, helped uh, really create Donald Trump. And I think Hillary Clinton did, unfortunately, because she wanted Trump to be the opponent. And I don't think she expected that she was helping to, to create a, a, such a dangerous situation, um, which ultimately came to pass, you know. You said something a few minutes ago about San Francisco politics um, not being conservative, but I I do feel that there that the politics here are slightly more conservative than people know, um, and to the point that my fiance Jeff worked the polls this last uh, November, and I think the return was I, I don't you guys might remember it was like fifteen percent voted for a Repub the Republican candidate for Trump. And, and that's, that's the size of Oracle Park. So um, I guess, yeah. It's, yeah. it's interesting though, some Republicans that have held office uh, or run for office here have adopted some fairly libertarian views. So they're pretty good on constitutional issues and anti-war issues. And it, it, so it's interesting. It's a little bit different than what you're gonna get in other places in the country, but I, I, I know what you're talking about. Um, but we don't have, for instance, we have not had a member of the Board of Supervisors from the Republican Party in the last 20 years. I mean, that's pretty significant. Probably the only person we'll ever interview that has ran for vice president. Uh, who knows? Right. Never say never. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah, I would love to hear just some insight on that and and also entering a race of course you want to enter a race to win but but you entering this race was more about having your voice heard and and showing that you know we 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 need we need to talk about these things too so it was kind of a different mentality entering the race for you right i think that's right i mean ralph nader who has been a great uh, advocate for a lot of issues like single payer healthcare before it was in the popular vernacular um he had run with um, uh, Winona LeDuc in 2000, and then with Peter Camejo, who was an old member of the Socialist Workers Party and then Green Party in 2004. And Peter was uh, dying of cancer, and Ralph would have run with him again in 2008, but he really wasn't in, in shape for that. So I think he told Ralph, you know, Matt's one of the few crazy ones that'll <laughs> run with you. <laughs> And so for me, I just felt like, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, Nader gets attacked all the time. And, and, you know, somebody asks you to do something like that with them. I just felt it would have uh, been wrong to, to not uh, be willing to participate in trying to, you know, push, push political thinking in a different direction. We went to a lot of places around the country. We would be interviewed um, and, you know, reporters would write things up that would never be published in newspapers. They would later text us or tell us, hey, hey sorry, my editors killed that story. You know, so there was a big blackout. When I mm. heard uh, Bernie Sanders speak, um, not this most recent time, but four years ago when he came through San Francisco, 
um, you know, he gave a, a great speech and somebody asked me what I thought of it. And I said, well, you know, I've heard Ralph Nader give that speech a hundred times. <laughs> uh, so we were really, were cut from the same cloth, so to speak, in terms of what we believed in. There was nothing Bernie was talking about that I disagreed with. And um, uh, it's just, it's sad that in our, in our, that our political spectrum is so narrow that we're not welcoming voices that could really help expand the public discourse on what's happening. I'll give you an example um, with the Garcia Zarate case. You know, one of the big things that people don't understand um, is that um, if you enter the country and you get caught without documentation, you get deported. And then if you come back in, you get caught again, you might have to serve a jail sentence before you get deported. And that's usually somewhere between, let's say, six months, maybe up to two years if you've got repeat entries into the country. Um, it changes, though, if you've been deported uh, for what's called an aggravated felony. And it makes sense that if you've been here without documentation, you commit a really serious crime, let's say murder, rape, child molestation, you serve your sentence, you get deported, and if you come back, now you're facing a 20-year jail sentence just for coming back because you have that serious conviction. The problem, however, is, and this affected Garcia Zarate, is included in the litany of things that are aggravated felonies, murder, rape, is included the sale of any controlled substance. And Garcia Zarate had a uh, over 20 years ago, 25 years ago, he had a, in Oregon, I think, a conviction for possession for sale of cocaine, I, I believe it was. It was, a, it was like crumbs. It was a, a tiny amount. And he got, you know, probation, credit for time served, whatever. When he got deported, he comes back. Now he's facing 20 years. And so they plea bargain that. And he plea bargained to five years. Then he, the next time he plea bargained to six. Then he plea bargained for seven. By that point, I mean, he served, you know, 15 to 20 years in federal prison, not for any crime except coming back to the country. And part of, you know, you might say, well, well, what's wrong with him? Why would he keep coming back? But he doesn't understand or he didn't understand what was happening like he thought he was being punished for getting caught he didn't realize that the the law this aggravated felony thing and how it got triggered but the democrats in congress who have held majorities at different times in both houses um, have never amended that law to change that and that's that's the thing that's so infuriating is like when you've got such inequity and as a result You've got just a huge percentage of people in our federal prison serving time for, you know, illegal reentry into the country. And I thank you for bringing that back up about um, Garcia, because, um, you know, watching the film and then seeing interviews with him, my heart broke because I know he was found not guilty in the case that you tried, but he's still in, in jail and he's still in prison. And do you see any hope of, of him getting out anytime soon? I mean, he's been in prison since 2015. Is that right? That's right. So in his case, uh, it would be a really interesting inquiry as to whether or not 
his uh, early drug use was a kind of self-medication for a psychological, uh, you know, mental health issues that, that he didn't right. know how to treat otherwise. Um, he was facing life in prison for murder. And so he's escaped that, of course, by winning the state case. In the federal case, they're trying to convict him of gun possession and it carries, I believe it's about a 10 year sentence. So technically he's still in custody because he hasn't served a 10 year sentence. He's served now about six years or you know, five plus years. So I don't think he should be there. And I think the federal courts are gonna have to work it out. Now, what I think is really fascinating is our argument on the gun possession uh, and the reason well, how to say, Garcia Zarate was convicted of gun possession, but the California Court of Appeal overturned it. And they overturned it for this reason. If, if you possess a firearm having been convicted of a felony, that's ex-felon firearm, you can't do it. And if you knowingly pick it up, uh, you, that's you've served or you've committed the crime. Our argument to the court was, look, if somebody handed you something in a bag and you didn't know what, what the contents were and you opened the bag and looked and then you saw it was a gun or it was contraband and you put it down, you can't be guilty of the crime because at the time you obtained possession, you had no knowledge of its contraband nature. And so our argument was Garcia Zarate picks up this object. He doesn't know what it is. He's unwrapping it and the gun goes off. Now he knows it's a gun. And between the time he knows it's a gun and he throws it, that's the short time that the jury in the state case that convicted him of gun possession. And we were saying to the court, you have to give the jury this momentary possession instruction that explains to them that you know he should not be convicted if at the time he obtained possession, he didn't have knowledge of it. Now the federal courts are gonna have to sort this out because interestingly, there's federal case law on momentary possession where people charge the offense of uh, being a felon in possession of a firearm factually are different than ours. They might say, oh, I saw the gun on the table and I picked it up to put it in a safe place because I didn't want any child in the house to injure themselves. Or, oh, I saw the contraband over here and I knew it was contraband or I knew it was a gun when I moved it, but I had a good reason for moving it. Mm. The federal courts say, we don't really care what your reason is. That's a crime. But the federal courts don't have any published decisions in a situation such as Garcia Zarate's, where in Jose's case, he picks up this object not knowing it's contraband. And so it's going to be a really interesting uh, case when it finally goes to trial. Tony Sarah is handling it. He was very upset, the defense attorney, Tony Sarah, he was very upset that the judge found. Garcia Zarate incompetent to stand trial because he felt like he was going to win the case mm -hmm. and uh, Garcia Zarate would not be in custody any longer. It was so great to watch you sort of just so clearly express these facts um, 
through all of the, you know, the misdirection and, and the white noise of the election and media. And I just I, I want to know what your secret is to staying so calm and level headed when when everything around you is just white noise and, and misdirection. And and I think you should teach a course on this, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, I think that I, I, I think trying to reduce things to their essential facts so that you can try to understand like what's really what what the real issue is is um you know something that my uh work as a trial lawyer has certainly helped me and in politics helped me you know like one issue that comes up with garcia zarate is people talked about the case from the context of sanctuary city and they and if you think about it the way the left talks about sanctuary city um, is probably the wrong way because we, we like to say, Hey, if a city declares itself a sanctuary city, we ought to be able to tell the feds don't come here, leave, leave our people alone. And we like that idea because we're in a progressive community and we don't like the federal government when Trump was president, let's say, but the real that sanctuary city worked was that there were these really interesting studies where um, it was, uh, I, I'm looking at uh, something I wrote before, National Public Radio in Northwestern University uh, identified 15,000, I'm sorry, 1,500 incidents in the last decade where when ICE wanted to put a detainer on somebody, they got it wrong and they were putting a detainer on a citizen or somebody not subject to deportation. So the feds want to put detainers on people and the federal courts have told ICE, you cannot put a detainer on someone unless you first obtain a court order mm -hmm. indicating that someone is subject to deportation. And then it's the cities like ourselves that say, you can call us all you want and ask us to put detainers on people. We're not doing it unless you prove to us with a court order that they're subject to removal. And so the way Sanctuary City actually works is that the, uh, the, the agencies like ICE are defying not San Francisco law. They're defying their own federal courts that are saying we're not, no, no city should honor these detainers. And if you think of it that way, you start seeing ICE under President Trump basically wanting to ignore the rule of law and just be able to, to, to keep people in custody. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting when you reduce it to that, it's a whole different dynamic now because now you're on the side of the federal law and the federal courts. And these aren't, you know, these aren't liberal federal courts. I mean, these are courts in Nebraska, North Dakota, Oregon, Rhode Island, you know, some progressive places, but some very conservative places that are all agreeing and saying, no, 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 you can't just get a detainer by, by, by calling up the municipality. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the media, um, despite the fact that we continuously try to explain the, the ricochet nature of the offense, um, they, they, they kept open this idea that somehow this was a defense 
theory of the case as opposed to an uncontested fact. Now, the district attorney had to pivot and rather than reevaluating their case and saying, wait, the bullet struck 12 feet from where Garcia Zarate was seated, then traveled 78 more feet. Like that's not very logical for an intentional murder. But what the DA argued was the gun, he was raising it to shoot at Kate Steinley. And as an unexperienced and nervous shooter, he pulled the trigger too quickly. And that's why it hit the ground first. So that was the theory that was put to the jury, that um, it was still an intentional murder because he was trying to shoot her and the bullet went relatively straight line. But what about your class and calmness? <laughs> yeah, back to that because we need it. <laughs> yeah. Does that have... Well, I was going to ask about your art. Is that kind of one and the same? Does that help? Well, art is more meditative. It's a meditative practice for me. It's like gardening or taking a walk. And so get lost in your thoughts. You can get some, you know, ideas. And, you know, if it, I don't know if you, what your, your personal practice is, but you probably, all, everybody has something that they got like to get lost in and, uh, I think you have to be open to ideas coming into your head at different times. And for me, I find that I really need to write down a good idea or as obvious as it may seem to me, I, I can't remember it a few days later. I'm like, God, what was that great idea? I had? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, in this particular case, I was helped a lot by the other folks that worked on the case, uh, Francisco Garte, mm -hmm was uh, the, he's the head of our immigration unit on the case. Michael Hinckley, uh, a former public defender who actually is in private practice and represents many police officers wow. in cases. He volunteered his time on the case. And um, I just read in the newspaper, he just got assigned a case representing a police officer who was admitted to accidentally firing a, a weapon. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's not something that only happens to people accused of crimes. Um, uh, Zach uh, Dillon was our paralegal, who's also an attorney. Uh, Danielle Thompson, who, who studied law as well, was our investigator. And we had a great team that we could really get together and kick around ideas. And one of the big challenges in terms of when we were picking the jury, I was trying to... to uh, get to some of the core issues uh, because, you know, everyone's talking about how Garcia Zarate is here without documentation or here illegally. And so I asked prospective jurors, I said, well, have you ever traveled to another country? Oh, where have you gone? Oh, you went to Sweden. Oh, you went to France. Oh, great. Yeah, I've never been there. And then I'd say, well, let me ask you this. If you got arrested in Sweden and you got charged with a crime, would you want everybody talking about the fact that you were, you were from the United States? Or would you want them talking about what it is that you're accused of doing? And everyone would suddenly say, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I don't want to, I don't want an uh, immigration discussion. I, I want to be able to prove my innocence. And you'd say, well, you want to be treated as if you were a citizen in that country and have the same rights, okay. Or with Garcia Zarate, I might say, well, you know, a lot has been made about the fact that he that he came to the United States uh, 
if you heard that he came from a part of Mexico where there's tremendous poverty and he didn't have, you know, enough food on, on the table, family table, and was asked to leave by his family, does that change your opinion? What if you heard he first came to the United States when he was a juvenile? Mm-hmm. You know, does that change your opinion? And suddenly people just have a little different feel for what the case is about. Because, you know, the demonization of the immigrant, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we all we all take pride in the immigrant stories from our own families. And then we're willing to like somehow cast cast it negatively when it's somebody else's story. You know, well, this is this is how this is what immigrant stories look like. Right. People come here without documentation. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much. Matt, for sitting down with us today. We loved Ricochet, and it was really nice to see you in your element. You were obviously the right man for the job, along with uh, the really powerful team you had backing you. Um, And yeah, thanks for your time. I mean, we've been fans of yours. You know, I voted for you for mayor in 2003. I wish I still had my Vote Matt t-shirt with your (laughs) face on it. I don't know what happened to it. I've moved too much since then. But uh, you really helped, uh, at least for me, catapult me into like the importance of local politics and, and getting me excited for mm-hmm. politics again. So uh, appreciate all the work that you're doing and, and you sitting down and talking with us today. It's been a real pleasure and I hope I get to meet you in person sometime. Well, we did. I did go to Tornado's and uh, Mad Dog in the Fog and right. have beers with you. Remember, you would invite people to come have beers with you during your campaign. Awesome. So, yeah, maybe we can have a, a reunite, reunited at a Mad Dog Good. in the Fog or something. Good. Good. I'm in. Sounds good. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions.